How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 287 of X-Laps, where it's a uh, one of those bittersweet days. It is a very bittersweet day because we're about to discuss a wonderful, wonderful book, a fantastic book, but it is one that is not long for this world. Uh, we've talked about this for a while. We've actually been rather shocked that it's made it even this long because... Uh, I don't know, I guess as comics fans, uh, especially current year comics fans, we're becoming accustomed to not having nice things. So uh, the fact that Hellions has uh, made it to 17 issues and will eventually make it to 18 is like an impossibility in my mind. And uh, here we are. Here we are. So let's talk about the penultimate issue here. This is Hellions number 17 at a January 2022 cover date. Stories called Trauma Response, written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia. Colors, Rain Barreto. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edit, Samaro Basso, White, Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale on November the 3rd of 2021. Now, our story opens on Krakoa, where Quinan looks to be just about ready to hit the road. You know, she was talking to Cyclops last issue, I believe, where she said, you know, she's just done here. You know, she has nothing left on Krakoa. And uh, she's carrying a duffel bag, though part of me wishes she had, like, one of those handkerchief-on-a-stick gimmicks that you see, like, hobos had back in the long ago. Um, Anyway, she's approached by Emma Frost, who doesn't think it becomes a great captain of Krakoa to simply walk away. So from that, uh, we can guess that this issue happens after Inferno Number 1, or at least after that one scene in Inferno Number 1 where she's promoted as a great captain. Now at this point, the ladies are joined by the Stepford Cuckoos, who are here to inform Emma of an attack by the right. Now they mention Nanny's ship being compromised and destroyed, as we saw last issue. Quanon asks if anybody's heard anything from the Orphan Maker. And the Cuckoos, they hesitate to say any more, until Frost gives them the okay to do so. Psylocke is told about Nanny, how she's married, and it was her estranged husband who attacked her. They tell her that Nanny gave a location in Arizona while in the Healing Gardens, which Orphan Maker was there to overhear. So, it stands to reason that he's probably headed to the desert. Quinan claims that she will bring Peter back. Emma tries to stop her, claiming that, you know, there are protocols to be followed here, you know, i.e. sidestepping potential international incidents. It's here where Quinan reminds her that she is, in fact, a great captain, and she suggests Emma just take this as an order. Meanwhile, in Arizona, Orphan Maker is on the hunt for his little brother, a.k.a. the little baby Wrightbot. Now, he's blasting fools left and right. Now, Dr. Murch and his associates are watching this via a nebulous villain monitor, and the Zeta team is called in. 
Merch tells whoever to, to give them their meds, give Zeta team their meds, except for Susan, who uh, we already know is quite the lunatic. Double-page spread of roll call and cred, our characters include Psylocke, Orphan Maker, Nanny, Havoc, Wildchild, Grey Crow, Empath, Emmafrost, Dr. Merch, Dr. Mayor, and Dr. Green. Back to comics, and we're at the Hellion's hangar where Psylocke is preparing to head out. She's joined by Havoc, who expresses a desire to accompany her. And he also expresses the desire to profusely apologize for wiping out her AI daughter when he lost his marbles a couple issues back. Quanon appears to accept his apology, knowing that he'd been manipulated for much of, if not all, of his Hellion's experience. They're then joined by Nanny and Greycrow, who are also ready and willing to head off to the desert. Psylocke reminds them all that this is not a Hellion's mission. After all, there ain't no Hellions anymore. That is over and done with. And she says that, you know, when the Hellions were together, all they ever did was hurt one another. To which, John laughs, suggesting like, you know, hey, if it wasn't a problem then, why should we start seeing it as a problem now? Psylocke also laughs, and so we've now got ourselves a foursome. Then, Empath approaches with arms wide open. If you remember last issue, we saw a very vulnerable side of Manuel. The acknowledgement that uh, nobody loves him, and it's unlikely that anyone ever will. Now, he claimed to care very little about the dissolution of the Hellions, but uh, the look on his face told us something completely different. We could probably assume that he does care about belonging and being liked. Now, Greycrow, as promised, reminds Empath that uh, he's going to kill him, <laughs> like, permanently. Uh, Psylocke cools John down. Empath takes this as a sign that all's been forgiven, but Quanon tells him to F off because he ain't coming with them. To rub a little bit of salt in the wound, perhaps, uh, Psylocke then calls for Wildchild to join them. So poor Empath is the only Hellion not going on this field trip. Once they're loaded into the craft, we get a look at Empath's eyes, and it's just another kick-ass Segovia facial, where Empath has this look of both being very upset, like betrayed, and also kind of angry. It's a really, really good and very, very powerful panel. From here, we got an info page. Uh, Emma Frost has typed up an urgent memo to try and get ahead of the Hellions' potential international incident. You see, they're going to have to spin this, and they're going to have to spin it quickly. Uh, she says that this is not like preventative, this is triage, because there will be a mess. Now, apparently, the right are not welcome in their chosen locale, which I assume makes them a far easier target to justify you know, taking out, or decimating, or uh, just, uh, I don't know, being a thorn in the side of. She does suggest, however, that if all else fails, she probably could convince some U.S. government officials that they'd ask for Krakoa's help in taking out these baddies. It would also appear here as though the uh, kill-no-human law is a bit more wibbly-wobbly than usual for this outing. Back to comics and back to the desert. Orphan Maker kicks in the door of the right Zeta base and starts beating up the bad guys. Now, one thing i got to point out here. Now, this is no indictment on the current creative team or anything. It's just part of Peter's deal, and it's been part of Peter's deal forever. I'm not really a fan of him talking like a cliché kid. You know, like saying, I'm a good boy, over and over again. I mean, it works in the context of the character, but it's always been a part of the character that kind of made me roll my eyes. Again, it's in character, so no harm, no foul. It's just a part of the character that I've never really dug. Anyway, from here, we zoom out to a pair of officers watching the base with binocs. 
Now, they hear gunfire, but ultimately decide to ignore it. One of them says that the feds had warned that the right is heavily armed and, you know, nutty. So this uh, helps them justify keeping their distance. Just then, the Hellion's jet soars in overhead. Then, I think our story might have skipped a page or two, because next thing we know, the Hellions are already facing off against the Zeta team, who are, like, just standing there. Now, Havoc asks how careful they're going to need to be here. Psylocke says not too careful, thus sort of kind of confirming the wibbliness of the kill-no-human deal in this outing. And so Havoc hammers the lot of them with an energy blast, and our fight is on. Now, Nanny runs off alone. She's got somewhere else she's got to be. Wildchild notices this. However, before he can go after her, he's slashed by Crazy Susan. Back inside, where merchant friends are tinkering with the baby bot... There's an explosion, and in through the flames walks our orphan maker. Now, he's here to pick up his baby brother. As he does so, Nanny rushes in, and she snatches the baby from Peter's arms without even thanking him for putting his neck out the way he did. The baby appears to be quite happy to be back in his Nanny's arms, and starts saying Mew Mew, which we've seen him say a few times to this point. What we didn't know, however, was that uh, Mew really wasn't a term of endearment. It was uh, just the first syllable of a, uh, of a little phrase here, which is uh, <clears throat> mutant scum. Boom. The baby murders Nanny right there in front of Peter's eyes. Merch and the gang seem just as surprised as anybody that this AI was anti-mutant at its core and from the start. And, well, uh, I suppose we can say a shoe done dropped, and it's ready to rock and roll. Peter kills Dr. Merch and his associates while they're celebrating and laughing about Nanny's demise. He then continues making his way out of the compound, killing every right member who gets in his path. And it's brutal. This is a brutal and powerful scene. Like these cultists, usually when we see the right, they're very offensive, right? I mean, and, and I mean offensive in, in a lot of different regards here. Offensive in, you know, their bigotry, of course, but also offensive in their proactivity. They're trying to kill, you know, our, our mutants here. This is different. This is different here. These cultists are actually trying to get away. Like they're in a horror movie. They're running and they're tripping over their own feet. They're not on the attack anymore. And they're not depicted as being these yeah, straw men, hate monger type characters. They're really depicted here as being stupid young adults. Stupid, scared young adults. Basically, like toy soldiers. And I mean, it's hard to feel all that bad for them considering, you know, who they are and what they are. But I do want to say that this, these aren't our 1980s right extremists. These are stupid, stupid impressionable kids. And uh, they are victims to the Orphan Maker's Path of Rage here. Now, once outside the compound, Peter is confronted by those two officers who try and talk him down. They're like, hey, Lower the weapons. Come on, dude. You know, cool, cool your jets. Back inside, we see the Hellions as they are looking over the carnage here. Orphan Maker just, he made a mess of the place, right? They see dead bodies. They see the wrecked Wrightbot baby. They see Nanny's smoldering shell. Then they hear a bracka, 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 bracka. And so they rush back outside where they see that the Orphan Maker has killed those two officers. Now, he's dropped to his knees, and he is whimpering at this point. He's apologizing. He's just, he, he really doesn't know what to make of himself, and claims that he just couldn't stop. 
And that's where our story ends. We do get a mostly blank quote page, which is from Nightcrawler, who has been kind of our, uh, you know, constant companion in this Hellions volume, despite not really being a part of the book. And here he talks about trauma being the root of tragedy. Next time out, we're going to talk about the long-awaited Marvel's Voices identity, which uh, DCBS uh, (laughs) took it upon themselves to cancel on my order from a few months ago, and I completely forgot that it was a thing that existed. So, uh, yeah, I I don't know why it would be canceled, considering every single store I go into has several dozen copies of it, like, stacked. (laughs) And I probably... Should have picked the damn thing up during one of the recent sales, but I again, I forgot all about it. I will be going out to buy it again, though. I feel uh, wrong not having it, considering we will be discussing it on this program. But uh, for this episode, if I'm not able to get out to the shop today, I will uh, just read it on Marvel Unlimited and uh, report from there. But that is next time. For this time, holy smokes. Um, <laughs> I say it every time. I'm going to miss this book. I am going to miss this book a lot. Uh, this is, uh, without a doubt, and, and I mean, I sometimes feel like I fall into the hyperbolic when I talk about things being the worst ever, like we've had with X-Men Green, but, uh, this is probably, actually, you know, without a doubt, this is the best current year comic I've read in years. Years. <laughs> it's been forever since I've read a book this good, this consistent. It's just... It's just amazing, and I'm going to miss it very, very much. I mean, this book, on the power of this book, I started spending, what is it, like $700 a month on uh, on Amazing Spider-Man, which comes out 85 times a week now. I mean, I'm buying that simply because of Wells' involvement, and uh, that was all based on the strength of this book, which this time out, absolute gut punch in, in many, many different ways here. Uh, of course... The baby right bot doing what it did was, um, it was one of those, like, mouth agape moments, which those don't happen very often in comics, uh, the, uh, you know, especially not a, not a current year comic. But when I read that page where, you know, you have this smiling baby and it says mutant scum and then kills Nanny, it came out of nowhere. I mean, because... The baby is, I mean, it's a robot, but it's a cute little character. And it's a very odd juxtaposition there to have it be this brutal, bigoted AI. It totally, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work when you look at it because it's just a cute little baby. It's saying mew, mew, mew all the time. And to have it show its uh, you know, actual nature here was definitely, definitely a punch to the gut. And it makes you think about a few things, you know, like uh, not being able to judge books by their cover, right? You you know, from the moment we saw this baby and uh, Nanny rescued it, we thought Nanny rescued it, uh, it, it's just, it's a very sympathetic-looking character. So to have that just turned on its ear here is, uh, it's powerful. It's very powerful. And it makes you wonder, like, what if the right didn't come to get the baby back? And it just stayed on Krakoa, and it harbored this anti-mutant... Well, we can't say it's programming, because it's, you know, from its core, uh, uh, to the shock of a merchant company. But uh, what if they didn't come get it? What if they didn't come and take it back? It would have left this, you know, mutant-hating AI on Krakoa, where it could have done Lord knows how much damage. 
right? That's it's interesting. It seems like a a bullet dodged, but uh, but maybe not dodged completely. And I suppose we could look at this uh, this character as a nature versus nurture commentary, but I'm not entirely sure which position this is taking on that uh, argument. And I could just be reading into it a little bit, but uh, maybe we'll find out more as we uh, as we move along here. I, I don't have any doubt that uh, Nanny will be back. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, which Nanny will be back. Will she revert back to her pre-death in a month? Sort of a characterization, or will she be like further changed from her, you know, core character? It, uh, it'll be an interesting thing to see play out. Speaking of which, uh, I think our big takeaway from this issue is uh, what's going to happen to Peter. What's going to happen to the Orphan Maker? Um, throughout the issue, yeah, I said the uh, kill no humans thing was wibbly wobbly, and it, it definitely is because I feel like we were making an exception for killing the right extremists. I feel like that was kind of okayed, but Peter did step over the line when he killed those officers. And he also killed Merch and company, who, of course, they are, you know, not good people, but they're also not, like, frontliners. You know, they're not soldiers. So you gotta wonder if uh, Peter's gonna be put on trial. Will he be sent to the pit? Will we see him out of his armor next issue? Well, what's gonna happen here? And I mean, we recently saw in X-Men Green how easy it is to get a uh, <laughs> to get paroled by Krakoa, so who knows? Who knows? Uh, in any event, I thought Peter's characterization here was fantastic. Uh, all those, you know, I'm a good boy things aside, which, like I said, I've never been a real big fan of, his behavior here was was pretty great. You know, after seeing Nanny killed right there in front of his eyes here, something in him snapped. And it seemed as though he became disconnected from himself. He lost control. Uh, the last things he says in this issue is, I couldn't stop. Which makes you think that something took over, like a switch flipped. You know, he just could not stop. He killed those officers who really didn't pose all that much in the way of a threat to him. I don't know that a, that a normal bullet would be able to penetrate the armor. So it's not as though it was like a life or death situation for him. This was just him seeing these people as being in his way. It's going to be very, very interesting to see play out. And I'm, it's one of those things I'm looking forward to and I'm dreading because, you know, once that issue hits, that means Hellions is over. And uh, I'm not looking forward to this book being over. Let's keep going down the list here. We got Empath, who we saw very briefly here, but it continues the the excellent subplot that uh, that Wells and Sokovia are putting together with him here. Empath sees the opportunity to have you know one more one more outing with the Hellions, and you can see the joy on his face. He's like you know he he's getting a second chance here to, no matter how long or how short the second chance will be, he's not going to be alone. You know, he gets to be a part of something. He even, like, tries to sell himself. Uh, when when Quanan is there trying to cool John's jets, he's like, hey, you guys need me. You need me to be a part of this. To which Quanan looks him square in the eyes and tells him to F off. In, you know, no uncertain terms. She actually, well, she says the squiggly letters there for, uh, for bad words, but we can assume. We can assume. Uh, and I talked about... Uh, the power in uh, Segovia's facials last issue when we saw that scene with Empath and Emma. And here was more of the same. You know, when, when he sees his teammates, his de facto family, 
getting onto the craft and leaving him behind, there's that odd look, and I don't know how Segovia did it. I don't know how, I mean, I'm not an artist, but uh, I couldn't even begin to wrap my head around putting, you know, conflicting emotions on a face where we see Empath and he looks both betrayed and angry. And it was just, it was very, very powerful. And I wonder, I wonder what we're going to see Empath do in the final issue, if anything. I mean, it could be interesting. Let's talk Havoc for a bit here. Um, it was very, I'm going to say powerful again. It was another very powerful scene where Psylocke forgives Alex. Uh, we know that Psylocke knows a bit more about the true nature of this Hellions team than she's let on about throughout the series. And uh, Alex, he's very, very apologetic for, you know, going berserk and, uh, and costing Psylocke her, you know, her, do- her AI daughter from the Fallen Angel series which uh, Sinister had the, the backup of. Now, Alex doesn't know about fail-safes. He doesn't know about trigger phrases. He doesn't know that Empath and Emma Frost are, are kind of like doing their thing to keep Sinister in check. Psylocke kind of does know. So she's, she's okay forgiving Alex. And the way she does so is very, very tender. She just like puts her hand on his chin and she's like, I, I know you're sorry. I know you're sorry. And it lets... You know, it lets Alex kind of realize that that maybe everything will be okay. That she will forgive him. He doesn't know that he's kind of not responsible for a lot of what he's done, but it's definitely a step in the right direction for him. Now, let's talk Alex in general and his part on this team from the very get-go. He's a part of this team basically because they played on his guilt. You know, he is unsure of his true nature here. He went through that change during the Axis storyline 150 years ago. And he's just unsure of himself. And he's gone through the ringer emotionally over the course of this series here with Madeline Pryor. Even that scene with him at uh, Arcade's Murder World where he's, you know, banging a dummy. You know, thinking it's Madeline. It's, he's gone through some stuff, right? Now let's look at this final mission, or assumed final mission, going into the desert. We see the team teaming up again, right? We've got Grey Crow, we've got Nanny. They're here because they're part of the team. And we've talked about how weird it was for a character like Grey Crow, a former, you know, original marauder, to, to be like the heart and soul of a team, of a family. And yet here we are. We have them joining because it's the right thing to do for their crew. That's not what it is for Alex. Alex is only here at a guilt. We get the impression that his teammates don't mean that much to him outside of his his own, you know, Summer's family guilty conscience. He's here because he feels like he has to pay back rather than, you know, uh, pay forward. Now, we mentioned a little bit about Emma's manipulations here, and uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the uh, Emma Frost world building that we got here, which I think is, it tells a whole lot more of the story than we've seen in books where Emma Frost is a featured character, which is like a lot of the other books. Here, she doesn't show up very often in Marauders, but we get such a great bit of insight into her mindset and her penchant for public relations. We see that memo that she's written where she basically says, we got to start spinning things now. You know, there's about to be a mess. There's about to be a bloodbath. 
and we need to we need to get in front of this. And we saw her do this in uh, X Force, trying to fix Beast's Terraverti mess. But here, I mean, just the way that this thing was written was was phenomenal because Emma is basically thinking out loud, right? This this memo is basically her working through what could be done, what should be done. And it's a warning that there's going to be a, a situation. And she even comments, you know, like, hey, if nothing else works here, I can get into the heads of some U.S. officials and make them think that this was a, uh, you know, a U.S. first, Krakoa second sort of a situation. I love that kind of stuff because not only does it help us to massage some of these things into actually happening and making sense. You know, it's not like we're just pushing things aside or forgetting about them or brushing them under a rug here. This is actually stuff that could come into play. And if it's, even if it's never mentioned again, just our knowledge that it was on the table to begin with, it allows us to put some dots together. So if this blows up into something huge but then goes away, we can just assume, okay, well, Emma fixed it. Because that's what Emma said she'd do. You know, we're not left asking too many questions, and it's not a scene we absolutely need to see. We don't need to see Emma sitting at a desk with her hands on her temple saying, okay, okay, America, (laughs) we did this for you. And then seeing someone in Washington, D.C. going, oh, yeah, I remember that. All we need here is the kernel of the idea, and we can connect the dots ourselves. Um, One thing I do want to say about the story is... uh, The Zeta team was built up as being something of a threat over the course of the past several issues here. They were kind of on the fringes here. We never really got them really, like, strutting their stuff, showing us what they can do. So I think it was easy to assume that they were going to be a more formidable threat to our crew here, and they weren't. (laughs) They went down pretty quick. I don't know if that was by design or if it was a part of the time crunch. In any event, I was not very interested in the Zeta team. So them being taken out quickly, uh, that was fine. That was okay with me. Um, And it's weird. They were taken out quickly, but we still managed to get a bit of characterization. You know, we've got uh, Crazy Susan there, who is so much of an extremist that the rest of the team are like, whoa, you know, maybe take it down a notch. And we, we heard about meds being given to them, so we don't know if that makes them crazier, if that makes them lose their inhibitions. All we know is that they were told not to give Susan any, so Zeta team was quick, painless. Uh, they they served their uh, they served their role, but um, I think that's about all I have to say about this uh, penultimate issue. Uh, other than repeating that I'm I'm going to miss this series desperately. I hope there is a post Inferno, post Slato Slato role for um, Segovia and Wells uh, on another X book, because like I said, this has been probably the strongest current year book that I've read in many years now, and I had very, very low expectations for it going in. Like I say every time out, if you're not reading Hellions, do yourself that favor. Do yourself that favor and read Hellions. Most of it's available on on Unlimited. You could pick it up and trade. You could probably still track down the single issues, just uh, whichever way you prefer. (laughs) I would uh, highly recommend checking this one out. Uh, You you deserve it. (laughs) It's It's such a good book. But that is all I have to say about this issue here. Let's uh, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters to attend to. First, we got Evan talking about Wolverine number 15. Now, Evan says, you know what my favorite thing about Savor Blackmore is? That he's not friggin' solemn. (laughs) 
I've been wanting to see more payoff about Arako, but if this is what it's going to be like, I'm starting to think maybe Kurt shouldn't have bamfed that moon in Way of X number 5. I'm not sure what it is about Solemn specifically that I find so off-putting. I mean, Tarn and the Locust Vile are pretty disturbing, but I'm okay with them over in Hellions. Solemn's apparent tendency to have sex with and or kill everyone he comes in contact with reminds me of James Bond on steroids, and I'm no James Bond fan. Blackmore's presentation, Acid Blood and whatnot, also seems just dark and gruesome, as opposed to Zebwell's whatever it is he's doing in Hellions. I can't seem to articulate it, but I know what I like, and Wolverine 15 isn't it. Maybe Solomon and Saver are just destined to be Evan problems. And you know, it's funny. Um, Wolverine is a, is a top-tier character, right? I mean, it should be very easy to tell a compelling Wolverine story. But I'm trying to think back to seminal Wolverine stories, like solo stories, and I really can't think of too many that I would recommend to like, anybody check out if they're... You know, if they're curious about a Wolverine solo story. I mean, we can go back, like, way back to the, you know, Claremont Miller thing. Maybe Not Dead Yet, that Warren Ellis thing, or, uh... I know there was a Steve Scrosey, like, two or three-parter I really enjoyed back in, like, 1998. But uh, it's hard to think of too many Wolverine stories that really wowed me and uh, are something that I would recommend checking out or going back to. The Wolverine series is, 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 have uh, recently become kind of a priority for me in my back issue collecting in the, in the cheapo bins and whatnot. Fifteen years ago, I mean, Civil War happened, and I've mentioned that Civil War was my kind of a washing my hands of being a Marvel zombie, so I wasn't buying every single thing. And that also coincided with uh, my moving into a new apartment, which kind of limited my spending money. So I had to make some pretty tough decisions. I, I basically dropped most of my DC buying at that point, but it wasn't enough. So, you know, thankfully, I was already kind of just washing my hands of the wider Marvel Universe due to the events of Civil War, but even still, that wasn't enough. So I had to actually drop some X-Books, and Wolverine was the quickest and easiest to drop, especially since we were starting to, like, branch off into, like, Wolverine Origins and all, all these miniseries. It was just a ridiculous glut of Wolverine books. Now, of course, I'd come back from time to time and I'd drop out again. It became a, one of those books that I just didn't need to have a full run of. But now that I'm, you know, catching up with everything and I'm kind of back in the fold 115%, anytime I see an issue of Wolverine that I need in the wild that uh, it's, you know, that's undercover price or, you know, a buck or two, 50 cents maybe, I'll pick it up without hesitation. And over the past few weeks, I've come into like a crazy amount of books that I've missed, probably like. 45 issues in like 50 cent and dollar bins so I yanked them all up and as I'm entering them into my uh, my spreadsheet to make sure I don't buy doubles even though with Wolverine it's hard not to buy doubles since they relaunch the damn thing so often but uh, I was flipping through them and I tell you what I could tear the covers off these things and put them on different books and I wouldn't be able to tell the difference they're all very samey now I say all that to basically say this um it's hard to tell a compelling Wolverine story. And uh, these the Savor and uh, Solemn bit, not great. It's just, it, I think, you know, it's weird. Um, in the Hellfire Gala, we had this whole logic, diamonds, logic crystals thing happen. And 
I think I had kind of slotted that into a higher priority than it ultimately turned out being here. I thought it was going to have something to do with Inferno. I thought it was going to have something to do with Mystique taking, you know, Emma Frost's, you know, role and ordering these things because Emma didn't remember getting them. But it turned out just to be this weird pirate story that I don't feel like it added a whole lot. If anything, I think it took away from uh, the potential import of this whole Logic Diamond thing. It's ultimately just not very interesting, and these characters are also not terribly interesting. Blackmore just looks like, uh, you know, they saw a mutant from um, Dark Knight Returns and was like, hey, that's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty cool look. Let's squeeze one of those into a Wolverine book. And, and it's odd, just last episode, I talked about how certain writers kind of get a break. Certain ex-writers get a break for having to serve under the, you know, iron fist of the Hickman regime here, where... You know, if only they were able to tell stories they wanted to tell and not be stuck under the constraints of Krakoa, they could, uh, their true genius would be on full display. And I kind of poo-pooed that. Here I'm going to kind of go the other way. I feel like if Percy were able to tell Wolverine stories with Wolverine fighting people we know, <laughs> you know, uh, characters we know, we might get stories we can actually sink our teeth into instead of these weird one-offs with... These, you know, create-a-character characters, they look like they could be on page, you know, 27 of a, of a superhero, supervillain role-playing game handbook, right? With about as much characterization as you get from one of those. I feel like maybe we'd get more interesting stories, stories we can actually sink our teeth into. Anyway, back to Evan's message where he wraps up with, On the subject of being careful what I wish for regarding more Rocco... I have a feeling you can relate based on your optimism for X-Men Green in this episode and what you actually read. And while that feels like a lifetime ago, where I was optimistic about X-Men Green, um, yeah, if, you're, if you haven't been listening that long or if you haven't listened to this episode or if it's been a while, uh, you may not know that I was very optimistic for whatever X-Men Green was going to be. Not that I was necessarily looking forward to being lectured on environmentalism, but I felt that... That sort of a story was a better fit for X-Men Unlimited, and I still stand by that compared to what we got as our opening story for X-Men Unlimited, which was a Wolverine story. Now, X-Men Unlimited, to me, is a place where you put the B, C, D list characters and give them an opportunity to shine. Maybe you put a new writer in there so they get an opportunity to sh you know show their stuff. Maybe a new artist. I mean, just, yeah, it's... I don't want to say it's a tryout book, but it's... It's a flavor-adding book. It should be a book where it's maybe not uh, maybe not required reading, but if you do read it, you'll get a little bit of added flavor. And you might see a character that doesn't really get an opportunity to do anything but be wallpaper in the main X books. So when that book was launched, X-Men Unlimited, the Infinity book, uh, the digital on uh, Unlimited, I was very disappointed that it was going to open with a Wolverine story written by Jonathan Hickman. Nothing against Hickman, nothing against Wolverine, but I felt like Unlimited was the opportunity to flesh things out, you know, and to just give us another Wolverine book when he's already starring in two to three books a month, and to have Hickman writing it when Hickman's already writing as many books as he wants to a month, it, and I mean, I understand. I understand launching with a relative Big Bang. And that's how the first volume of X-Men Unlimited launched as well, with the return of Magneto after that final Chris Claremont story back in uh, 
So I understand it, but I thought it was a missed opportunity. And then when I hear that X-Men Green was going to be a thing, I was kind of excited. Again, not because I wanted to be lectured on environmentalism, and not because I care a whit about Nature Girl, but because I thought that was the direction that an X-Men Unlimited should go. You know, give us a character who doesn't get much play. Give us a situation that we wouldn't see in, in the printed books. And so I was all for it. And then we read it. <laughs> and as Evan put it here, yeah, be careful what you wish for. Sometimes uh, sometimes you just might get it. Thank you so much for writing in and reminding me of my uh, more Pollyanna-ish uh, outlook <laughs> at X-Men Green. Uh, next up, we got Peter, who mentions, It was terrific to hear from Damien and Evan in a single episode. And I agree 100%. I, uh, I love hearing from our more prolific uh, letter writers, and uh, I love it when we have new people come in and become prolific letter writers. It's, uh, it's probably the most fun part of this whole, uh, this whole gig. Peter continues, Also, my parents were in their mid-30s when they had kids. Some friends' parents were in their late 30s to early 40s. And I have a few friends who themselves began having children in their early 40s. So it's not too late. Now, what Peter's talking about there is, uh, I, I don't remember which episode I talked about this on, but uh, the wife and I were starting to worry that we waited a little too long to uh, start a family. Uh, we, as I've mentioned on other shows on this channel, we went through quite the painful uh, few years there, financially speaking. Um, near homelessness, um, just, it was not... Not the most opportune time to start having children, and unfortunately that was like during, you know, prime baby-making years. So we, you know, we didn't, and uh, now that we think we're in a position where we can, uh, we're worried that it might be a little too late. But uh, we're not without hope, so we are still hopeful that uh, we can make this happen. And, uh, of course, ad options like adoption are out there as well. So we're not without hope, but... Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a time where we're starting to have to face reality, you know, and sometimes reality is, uh, you guys know me, I avoid reality <laughs> every every chance I get. So to kind of be faced with this uh, and have to actually, you know, swallow it, it's, eh, it's made for some discomfort, uh, uncertainty, and uh, perhaps worst of all, uh, regret. But again, we are not without hope, so fingers crossed that uh, that we can make this work. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, Peter, and thank you for those uh, words of encouragement. It really does mean a lot, because uh, it's not always the easiest <laughs> situation to stop and think about, but knowing that there's hope and, and remaining optimistic is, uh, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a, a definitely a net positive, uh, not only for me personally, but of course for this show, because, you know, I figure by the time I pass on, we'll be at Essential X-Lapsed episode uh, 7,500 or so, and then, uh, you know, my my heirs can continue on, <laughs> and uh, we could just, because uh, by then I'll probably be into like the I don't know, early 90s. So we have a lot of years to go between then and now. So I'll need, I'll need heirs to, to continue this program for, uh, forevermore. But anyway, I think I've yammered on quite enough for today. I'd like to uh, thank you all so much 
for indulging me and my uh, my blibba blabba here. Now, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, I would encourage you to do so. You can find me several different places. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Ace Comics. Instagram, 90sXmen. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. And, of course, you can shoot an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can find blog posts, show notes, and all sorts of stuff at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. Of course, the complete audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You find that on all platforms that you like and probably the ones you don't as well. Of course, there is the Patreon, patreon.com slash xlast, where you'll find some behind-the-scenes stuff, some exclusive content, and a great group of folks to chat with. But I think that's going to do it for right now. I'd like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching.